when I tell my parents, you know what, I've experienced racism and our family has experienced racism, they will deny it. Before they even ask me a question, they'll deny it. So if I say by the same token, you know what, your blood is, is uh, very important because genetically the imprint of your blood is needed to give to other people that are from your background that might be in trouble. They might be in trouble medically. They're gonna they're gonna resist that because they're like, no, everyone's blood is the same. I've bought my way into assimilation, and I would rather stay that way. You don't see me in jail. You don't see me in movies um, cast as the villain. So that's they're rewarded that way. So that's an example of really understanding how they perceive the way you perceive them. That's that's an example, a really good example of it. Welcome back to another Stand Up From The Inside podcast presented by Versity. I'm your host, Edgar Daggett, and we are tuning back for part two of the Liz Need podcast. You know, she had an amazing conversation with us in part one where we talked about culture, her life as an immigrant, but now we are taking a deeper, deeper dive into the black and brown communities, her opinions on it, and those outside forces. Let's tune in. Let's jump right into it. Do you think it's beneficial for everybody to directly be on that same line? Or do you think, because I feel like it'll be the exact same way for everyone. And when you're the exact same way, you know, you might be losing some of that, some of those special characteristics like you are as a person. Do you think everybody should be, you know, find their own way, you know, look at, okay, this is who I am. I'm going to stick to a little bit of that Americanized side, but I'm going to spread out and also be who I am as throughout my culture. I don't think that assimilation works. And I can tell you from personal experience, being raised by what, I mean, Google it, what is a model minority? My parents adhered to that model minority kind of rule, set of rules. And I don't feel like I'm part of the culture completely. I am constantly, imagine this, I was born 50 years ago and I'm still being asked where I'm from. Like every day, if I go outside, somebody will comment on my appearance as if I'm the first person that they've seen. What And they'll Sometimes it's framed as a compliment. You know, how your skin is so beautiful or you're so beautiful. You're exotic. You're, um, you know, where were you born? Where are you from? How did you lose your accent? Um, it doesn't really work that way. Authenticity is the important part of culture in my belief system. And that if you force a simulation, if you reward, because dominant culture is who teaches us how to act and they do it through um, rewards and punishments. So certain culture learned that, okay, if I'm punished this way, you know, Amer uh, Indians, for instance, and a lot of other Asian groups came over for prosperity. They wanted to win money. That's what they were hoping for. And so they said, okay, give me your rules and then I'll do those rules so that I can win in your culture. And there are other cultures that didn't come the same way. They didn't come through choice. Um, there are cultures that have been here a lot longer and there's a lot more violence and stress in their story. I'll give you another example. You know, African-American 
men and women were taught that there's only a certain way that your hair can be to be professional. And so all this money and time was spent trying to get their hair to look like someone who is Caucasian or European based is our, I mean, ask yourself this question, did that really help? Or did it shield the dominant culture from understanding something really important? There's a reason why people consider it okay to touch hair that is African-American hair because it was hidden from them for so long. Um, in the marketing, uh, marketing of hair, for example, if you think about what healthy hair is considered, it's silky and shiny and sleek. Well, there's a lot of people whose hair is not silky, shiny and sleek, but is healthy. And so we have to, we have to make space. Dominant culture has to make space for people who are different. That, that is a really important thing because people are now realizing that assimilation doesn't work, that you're not really getting anything. You're not really getting representation politically. You're not really getting all of the things that you thought you were getting. You're not, as a minority, as a marginalized group, you're not getting all the benefits of dominant culture just because you act like them. And so now there's a special moment in our country to hear the voices. The voices have been raised. The gauntlet has been thrown down. I mean, some of it's negative and some of it is they're being quiet, but they realize that assimilating isn't really working. And so we have a chance to ask questions and get to know people that are different than us for the purposes of sliding our chair over a little and making space for them. Because at the end of the day, medically in particular, representation is so important. We have to have every group represented or we have um, you know, solutions medically that only fit the dominant group. And then we're losing really important people because we don't know enough about them. 100% agree. So do you think there's a standard that is in place right now that needs to be changed? So like, this is the standard. This is what you know, we start with and everything else is either super unique, super different. Because when you say that about the hair being like silky and smooth, not everybody has that type of hair and you don't grow with it, you will maybe never get it. Yeah. So why is that the standard? And do you think that standard needs to be changed? I think that the standard that needs to be changed is that there is, I, I, honestly, my country, the United States, I'm an American citizen, has changed. And that, yeah, at mm -hmm. one point there was a majority and there were these small marginalized cultures, but the standard is in the culture that we need to learn to value something other than what was taught to us as valuable. Right. Like there's, it's so arbitrary that people would spend so much time and money to look like something that is a beauty standard. So I don't know where that starts. I really don't. I think that conversation, I think that um, you know, I just posted something about this, that darkness never wins because light just shows up and wins right away. Like darkness doesn't exist when light is there. And so I think about it in terms of shedding light on different types of people and different cultures that we just have a lot of learning to do, that that needs to be the standard, that we have to become aware of the people who live in our communities. We're not talking about people in other countries. We're talking about people mm -hmm. who live next door. And yep. when it smells different and looks different, it is not an expectation that that person either acts exactly like what was dominant culture in the 20s, uh, that they have to do that or they have to get back on their boat and go back to wherever they came from. Like, really, that tells a lot about 
where we're at as, as an, a culture. And I am just as uninformed as anyone else is. Like I grew up as a white person. I grew up as a white, blonde, blue-eyed girl in the Twin Cities. And no, I don't look like that, but see the outside doesn't really, the, my hair is not learning anything. It's my brain that's learning things. It's my mm -hmm. eyes that see things. And so it needs to become a standard in everyday conversation. It needs to become like, you know, what parents, the conversations that parents are having, that you are hurting your children if they don't know anything about the world except for themselves. You're literally damaging your child's future because they will get fired and they will lose relationships and they will learn the hard way. So why not, instead of saying, well, I don't see color or we don't, we love and respect everyone. Well, love and respect means awareness. Love and respect and respect means effort. I mean, the reality is, is that I'm not African-American, but I take interest in the community and understanding their perspectives. And it's very well documented. It's not like you can't find information about, you know, a black person's relationship with medicine or, um, you know, maybe someone who is non-binary and you you want to understand how they react to hospitals like it's it there's already information about that it really is having cultural curiosity it's about fostering cultural intelligence do you have the understanding of what to say what not to say how to eat food like for instance if you're eating asian food and they use a lot of like slipperier ingredients so there might mm -hmm. be squid there might be things that are raw you never ask here's cultural intelligence for you you never ask what is this never you, you slice off the smallest bit of food that you can. And then you, if you have to, if you're afraid of it, then put it in starch, like find the noodle, find the rice and put it in your mouth and taste it and swallow it with an open mind. And then you say, thank you for serving me. And if you can slice something else off of it, or you can say, you know what, I, this is how I think I want to serve myself. Am I doing it correctly? Learn things like, slurping like if you're having ramen noodles slurping in asian countries is a sign of respect and enjoyment and that that is different than the quaker based country that we live in which every smell and sound is kind of cut down to a minimum so you have to learn that there's just different ways of doing things and that your curiosity to foster your intelligence will end up going a long way and we can do this quickly so that we can have those conversations on a deeper level about bigger things. We skip the basics and go straight to the big topics. And we wonder why when you're asking someone about what about something about their body, but you haven't learned anything about their holidays of how they value food, how they value family, the way they express anger, how they ask questions. If you don't have any of that information and you go straight to the thing that you want, guess what? Marginalized groups are super used to that. They're super, they're used to you pretending they're a cardboard cutout until you need something from them. So we you have, have to, to learn. You have to learn about them first. Yes. And then be like, yes. okay, because we have we come up in adversity a lot with um, and I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, no, that's okay. Directly going, can we get blood? Yes. Can we just get this from you? No, you have to learn. And, you know, as we progress and we, we've done our unconscious bias training that as an organization entirely on learning and being one with the other groups. And that's something massive because 
you have to learn first. You have to get those fundamental steps, whether you didn't learn them in in, uh, in the school education, but you have to learn. And the only yes. way by learning is by being around those individuals, by being around those types. And here in the United States, you know, going back about what the standard is, I think it has to kind of evolutionize. You know, our yes. United States isn't the same, uh, isn't filled with the same people that were in the 1800s, 1850s, 1900s. We're changing. There's states where, you know, going back to that minority population is the majority population. Yeah. Like I just came back from South Florida. It's all Spanish. It's yes. 100% Spanish. Billboards in Spanish. I go inside a store. They speak to you in Spanish. You're like, you feel like you're in a different country. Yes. But those people are different from the original people that were there. You go, you just said here in Detroit, there's a, a massive Indian population. There's a massive, we have the University of Michigan, go blue. And uh, there's a massive uh, minority population with Asian, Indian. There's a massive group. And that same thing is in California. And those are things that we have to uh, kind of realize. We have to learn about them. And we have to be like, okay, this is our new standard. This is how we should approach X, Y now and keep changing and evolving and be better as a person. And when it comes to questions, like what are questions that should be asked? Because, you know, Again, we people are afraid to ask certain questions or people are afraid to learn. And you said it perfectly. You go right to the top and you just wanna you just want stuff. And yes. that shouldn't be like that. You know, you can't just go never talk to a imagine going to a uh, you have a friend and you never talk to them for a year, two years, but then you realize they have something now that you want and you go, Hey, can I get this? You're probably not gonna get it. You haven't yeah. talked to them, you haven't done nothing, Absolutely. you know, you're not gonna get what you want from them. And that is something we have to learn as a community organization. And, but I want to know what are those questions? Like, how do you approach for somebody that's scared for someone who's, who's not part of the minority, who maybe might not have a person to connect with? Cause one of my biggest advice is find somebody and have them take you on that journey, you know, yes, take absolutely. you to learn. And what do you think is the best advice or best questions to ask when dealing with, with some of those situations? That's a good question. So one of the, there's there's a few questions that I think that you can ask. And I want to speak to people who don't have a friend to take to the restaurant, who don't know anyone personally, but they want something from that person, from that culture. And the first thing is you ask the question, what has your experience been with this? What is your experience? And I base that in the idea that if two people were in the same room at the same exact temperature, but one person feels very cold and another person feels like so hot, sweat is rolling down their forehead, that their experience is different even though the situation is the same. Like get that idea, get the idea that when you're talking to someone who appears to be different than you or you figure out that they're different from you, that the question, you know, what has your experience been with this? Can I ask you a few questions? What are your, what has your experience been with this? That's a really important thing because my experience growing up in the, in the Midwest is very different than my best friend's experience. It, it is just plain different. And our job is not to try to connect them and find the connections that are the same. Our job is to just learn what's different. You know, you get nothing out of telling someone you settle down. You're not cold. You're warm. I'm warm. So you must be warm. I mean, where do you get with that? Does one, mm-hmm. does, does anything change in that person who's cold just because you told them to be warmer? Absolutely not. They feel what they feel. And the next thing is um, what has your, so it's based in another metaphor, which is 
you know, if I'm running and I see a dog off a leash and I'm afraid and that nice owner says, oh, don't be afraid. He's really nice. Well, let me tell you, my experience is not based in that one dog. It's based in every dog I've ever seen in all the times I've ever run. So when you're asking what has your experience been, recognize that it's not going to be in the last two minutes. It's going to be what has your experience been in every situation that you've been. Maybe my mother is really afraid of dogs. And so because of that, she taught me uh, to be afraid because she didn't want to deal with a dog eating my face off. And so now I'm afraid not only because of my own experience, but because of the experience of others. And so the historical experience is really, really important. And then the third thing is, as you learn about what someone's experienced, you ask them, what is the impact been on your life? Like, how has that affected you? Because I can tell you that everything that you see here has been impacted by the things that I saw and the things that people said to me. I look for all intents and purposes, very Americanized. Why? Because of the impact of the collection of things that happened. So it's not about intention. I talk to people all the time and particularly people from dominant culture. So someone who is white and Christian tends to be, is someone who will go, well, I didn't really mean that. I mean, people just really need to stop being so offended. I didn't mean that. Learning about impact, learning about the impact of what has happened, learning about the impact of what you're doing, that's where the conversation has to start. You have those questions where you think, what is your experience? Um, what is your experience historically? Like, where did you, is there anything else besides this moment that's teaching you something? And then what has the impact on you been? What has the impact on your community been? You will get the shorthand so fast. And I said this at the end of kind of like my last statement, but it will stop feeling like a cardboard cutout and it will start feeling like a three-dimensional human. Because right now you can see something, but you don't know anything about how the blood moves through their body. You don't really get what makes them sweat, what makes them happy, what makes them excited. And you have to have those conversations for that person to slowly become something other than the assumptions, like a compilation of the assumptions that you've made about them. So you have to get to know people. You have to yeah. get to know them. And yeah. you can't solve a problem without knowing what the problem is. Yeah. And it's. Basically, you have to literally get to know them, sit down. If you don't feel comfortable, you know, meeting all the way, meet in the middle is really what you have to do and just ask yeah. questions. Like, yeah. listen, uh, what's happening in your community? How can we help? Um, is there a, what's affecting, you know, what's making things good, what's making things bad? And then from there, figure out how you can both help each other. And that's what I've been. So we went to this conference uh, earlier this year and, you know, we talked a little bit about that diverse community, about that minority community and the ways we can help each other. And we were talking and brainstorming with other blood centers. And this came up to be an issue because, you know, not all blood centers have that DEI council, not that um, many blood centers are, you know, equipped or yet, yet into those communities. And those were questions that were coming up. Like, how do we get in? How do we talk to them? What if you don't have this special DEI cancel that, you know, that you can hear from and learn from and share those, like, see like a mix of different communities or different uh, diverse cultures. We don't have that tool to learn from. Like, how do we get in? And yeah. we either said, okay, do you have any people that work with you that are part of that diverse culture? And not close, but how do we start? And yeah. the start is asking questions, find somebody who's 
either close to it or a present donor and start asking questions. And that is how you find out a problem. And that's how we can probably come to a solution. And, you know, I want to circle to hospitals because hospitals play a big role in our system, you know, and some of the communities don't have a positive look on hospitals. And, you know, they always say hospitals on our own side. And you see sometimes commercials, you know, saying like, okay, X uh, person in this community has a higher chance of, you know, passing away or, or getting infected with anything from, you know, the majority population. And how do hospitals play a big role in our, in those diverse or minority communities in your eyes? So first of all, I want to say that if you want to know about other people, don't start with people you see as different. Ask those questions to people you see are the same. Like you can just pick five friends, five colleagues and say, what has your experience been with emergency? Like what, what do you consider an emergency and why? That would be an example. So, um, you know, the first thing is what is your experience with insurance and how important has that been? And when did that become important? For my family, insurance was like something that you just had to have, like you had to have a bank account and you had to have insurance. For others, insurance is considered something that's optional and they're, they feel uncomfortable being forced to do it. Some people, you know, do you get, how do you manage your health? You want to ask that question, like, is managing your health doing something just for yourself? I mean, obviously there's this huge group of people in the country that don't trust vaccinations and it seems to be growing. Mm -hmm. So being able to ask those questions, like what, why, when do you go see a doctor? Like have people passed away before they should? And what is their experience? There's well-documented information about how hospitals treat minorities, particularly uh, African-Americans and Latinx groups. And they're not, it's not really like a great track record. So we, we have that information. So you would ask that question, like what has the impact been on the stories that you hear and why do you do you feel 100% trusting in a doctor like i had a family doctor his name was dr lian and he saw everyone in our family and he he did every single one of my vaccinations he saw my mother he saw my father that was pretty typical of a white family in the midwest in the 70s so that's what my parents did. But there's another person, a, a best friend of mine who's African-American. They never went to the doctor. I mean, they really literally never went to the doctor. They didn't do those checkups. The only time they went is to get those immunizations. And it was expensive or um, they felt like it took a lot of time or you know whatever. They would get it in a community um, situation. What if that person's relationship with the doctor is shaped by the media and that all you see is you go to the doctor when there's violence going on or um, a person who never wants to go to the doctor unless uh, it's the same sex. So someone who's a uh, male or female, let's say. There's a lot of situations that create impact on the way that someone sees it. And your job is not to get someone to do something, it's to learn what influences them. Once you learn what influences someone, it's not going to be that hard to get them to do something because you have to go to the place that makes sense to you. That's where you start the conversation. So, um, you know, one question would be, do you typically give blood? Um, and is there anyone that you know that gives blood? And what do you think they do with the blood? And, you know, ha have you had your blood drawn? And was it a positive experience? You know, another side thing is a lot of Americans have um, dental anxiety. 
A lot of like, that's something that you have to answer on a survey when you go get your teeth cleaned because someone screwed it up before. And so now you're afraid and there's all these people that never go to the dentist and there's just, there's, and there's real issues between your gum health and heart disease. So we have to learn how to comfortably ask those questions and, and, and learn what the experience is. The big thing is when do you access the medical community? When did you, when does your family access the medical community? How do you approach end of life? Um, what do you know about history? Like my parents, this is an interesting thing. I hope this is not too much information, but my mom okay. went into menopause really early. And so when I was in my late thirties and I was already losing my period and I didn't know, no one told me. So I was sweating and growing the mustache and I was having all these different things happen. But I didn't have that medical history, and I certainly didn't have the medical history from my grandparents and my great-grandparents because they weren't in the business of collecting that information yet in India, but they were in the United States. And so you have to even understand that, like how much do you know about your own history to understand whether someone is going to give blood? Like those things will make a difference because if someone never goes to the hospital, then they're going to feel less comfortable in a hospital mm -hmm. situation. So that's, those are some ideas to think about. Yeah. And it's super interesting because, you know, I have friends that completely don't go to hospitals. They are completely against it. Uh, the only time they've gone to a hospital is if they really, really needed it. And, and going back to, you have a family doctor that has seen everybody and I've seen, you know, certain cultures go, I will only go to a doctor who's like me yes. because they'll know exactly where I'm coming from. Yeah. And, you know, we've had doctors that are Hispanic or African-American, part of the black and brown community. And that's what I see a lot. And, you know, people are afraid and people are afraid to go to uh, hospitals and going back to the health insurance. Either it's because uh, maybe they think it's needed and it's not needed, maybe because of where they came from. They didn't have uh, health insurance or maybe it's too expensive and they can't get to it. And then when you feel a little bit already uncomfortable you know, we talk about vaccinations and possibility where people now are maybe beginning early January, you're either required to have it or you have to test weekly in order to work. And now that perception is like, now you're kind of forcing me to do something I don't want to do. And that makes people pull back even more. And I'm like, okay, this is not getting us to the direction that we want. We want people to feel comfortable. We want people in our diverse cultures to be like, okay, I want to go to the hospital because I know, or to hospitals because I know it's needed. And, you know, we see those negative uh, reactions. Those are facts. Uh, there's stories saying like people are treated bad or maybe they don't get the resources that they need. But when we sometimes see that blood world, less than 10% of the blood that's donated it comes from those diverse cultures and, you know, we, pe people need people like you. So other than the A, B, A, B, O uh, combination of blood, there's little antigens, like little tiny, tiny antigens that kind of control like, okay, you need special blood because you're in that African-American community and you want blood from an African-American community. It doesn't mean you can't accept any other blood, but there's little tiny antigens that could be better for you but we just don't have that. We don't have enough of that. We don't have enough of that blood and we're super, super low. We need to raise how much we have and that plays a big role. And that is something that also it gets pointed out that, 
And some groups do see it within a, a community. So a black and brown community, there's some groups that see that. They're like, why aren't you guys donating? And the other side is like, we're not donating because they're not going to give us the right blood. And there's like that conflict within each community. But how is the perfect, but there's no perfect way to be like, okay, you're right, you're right, or you're wrong, you're wrong. How would you say for those, that part of that community that does not want to go to hospitals, that have that fear, that hear about those bad stories, how is the way, how are the ways that we can communicate with them, whether it's bringing new people or getting that survey, how you said, and asking those correct questions? How is a way that we can get those, that group of people to donate, to want to be part of the, of the um, blood world or that hospital world? Like what are ways that we can find kind of like that equal middle and be like, okay, we need blood. We need to be out there. We need to push. We need to find ways to attract uh, the, that community. What are some ways do you think that could be helpful for us to try or for other blood centers to try within those communities? There's two things I'm thinking. The first one is when you're having a conversation, you have to address the problems. You have to address the context of the impact. So depending on the community, you have to think, what has the impact of the narrative around medicine been uh, for this person? Uh, African-American people, rightfully so, can be very distrustful of the American medical system, rightfully so. Um, there is a feeling among and and it's it is in the story the african american story in the united states the whole history of the united states that you give and you don't get that you will give labor but you will never get the results of that labor that we need you for all these different things but you will not actually get the benefits it's for the benefit of someone else and i can give you a whole bunch of information that's that is it's the truth it is not just a view it's the truth so because of that, that conversation has to be to bridge the gap of the distrust. You have to be able to say to someone, here's the thing. If you give your blood, I guarantee that it is going to go to the right person and that we have to build representation in that. You have to look at, um, you know, for Indian people, let's just say, I'm just going to use the other side of it because there is no real history of taking advantage of Indian people, that's not a narrative, but they don't necessarily feel like they belong to that situation. So you have to find out how can you tell someone, what are the numbers? What are the things that are happening because that person doesn't have the right blood, doesn't have the connection to the antigens that you're speaking of? And the other side of it is a bigger picture, which is that representation is also in media. So what do you think Indians are? Well, you think they're um, engineers and um, hotel owners mm -hmm. and doctors. Why? Not because you have a bunch of friends that are doctors, but because that's how they've been portrayed. Correct. What do you think about African-American men? Well, you think they're violent. I would ask people to do an audit, just have a notebook and watch movies and look at the characters and what the color of their skin is and what their role is. So bigger picture, you want to reach a ton of people, find a way to get a storyline into a movie or a television show and people will buy it. I mean, people, there was this storyline in This Is Us where um, the dad, Jack, died, we found out, because a slow cooker went up in flames. Did you know that people stopped buying slow cookers because of an imaginary thing that happened? Um, you oh, don't even gosh. have that brand anymore, but it's so powerful 
how media, how the storylines impact us, that that's like another thing that I really, really believe in. If I want America to do something, I'm putting a movie out. I'm going to find a way to put my thought process in every storyline I can, because eventually they're just going to do it because they see it, because they think that that's something that's normal. So there's kind of two ways to think about it. Yeah. Do you think culture plays a role in it as well? So like, because I've reached out to certain groups and, you know, this recently just happened. I won't say any names, but I reached out to this one donor. Uh, he was a proud African-American man. And we were talking, he was donating blood. And I was like, would you like to be, put yourself out there and be a story, be yeah. part of it and kind of give why you donate? Why are you part of, um, why are you part of this world? Why do you donate? Why do you want to help back? And his direct answer was, I would love to, but I don't want to because I'm afraid of how people are going to react. And I'm like, what do you mean? His family don't, his family doesn't know that they donate, that he donates. And because he was like, all they've taught me is you shouldn't donate because your blood's not going to go to someone in our community. It's going to go to someone else far, far away or to some white person. And he was trying to explain to them that adversity, we try to keep our blood as local as possible. Uh, we try to help your community. You know, we're here in the community. We are part of your community. We are trying to help. But he was very afraid, almost like, like he was afraid of what his family was going to think of him, almost as if it was betrayal. And it was shocking to me. It was really shocking to me to hear that because I was like, he he tried to, he, he was perfect. He was trying to help the community he's trying to bring his family together and try to push but his family's completely against it and i'm wondering is it culture is it just maybe that because we're all maybe first generations and is it like that family that came from somewhere else or maybe they had a bad experience that prevents them from spreading that word and you know we got to keep like and it's always like in our culture it's like that grandmother or that or that grandfather that has that heavy hand or heavy word on we do this or we don't do this. Is it culture that prevents people in those communities, black and brown community, Hispanic communities, Indian, Asian? Is it culture that prevents uh, our current diverse communities to donate or to not donate? I, I think so, but I think it's in the way that that marginalized culture interacts with dominant culture. So I used to say white culture. And then that really just doesn't get me anywhere. Like people just get really, they try to find like the devil's advocate in the thing that I'm saying. So how does that culture interact with dominant culture? And what are the rules that are being passed down? And what are the changes? And then representation is everything. You know, I had a, there was a kid that came up after I had finished a speaking engagement, this Indian kid. And he said, you know, I, I think I want to be a speaker, but he had never seen an Indian person speaking. So he didn't know. And it's strange because it should just be humans, right? If a human is speaking, then you can speak. If a human's a millionaire, you can be a millionaire. But that's not the way we're trained to see ourselves. We're trained by dominant culture to see ourselves as a marginalized group. And so black and brown people, that narrative is super negative. And they have to be able, there is some insulation there's there's little capsules of behavior that are sometimes they're overt and sometimes not 
um, you know, I didn't know until, which is really insane in considering what my background is, but I didn't know that African-American women, that it, that when they did their hair, that it could take up to four to five to eight hours. I didn't know that. Like, I really didn't have any idea and I'm not seeing it. So representation is what informs me. I have to be exposed to it in order to understand it. And I wouldn't even know what the question is. So you bring up a good point that maybe you, you, you're your focus is one person at a time, one person at a time. And to realize that as good as you feel about that behavior, that that person may not have a family that feels the same way. Like I have a, my, my daughter's boyfriend, um, she's, you know, we're all vaccinated and they're anti-vaxxers and he's going to hide that from his family. He's mm -hmm. not going to tell his family. That's something that's foreign to me. Why would you think that that's a bad idea? Because everybody in my family thinks it's a good idea. And um, until we have to stop thinking that, well, because I think it's normal, everything else is weird. And we have to start digging into the fact that people really do look at it differently. And then how can we get those leaders to, you know, it takes one person and then five person people and then a hundred people, you know, there was one person, the, there was a first person that came from India to the United States and they got a good education and they were able to make a different level of money. And then another person came and another person came. There were 175,000 Indians in all of the United States in 1975. And now there's millions. How did that happen? There was one person and then five people and then 10 people. So there is a definite grassroots approach that needs to happen because of marginalized culture's relationship with dominant culture. Well, Liz, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, to talk to the fans, to the viewers here at Stand Up From The Inside podcast. Thank you so much for being here. You've been inspirational. You've been amazing. Um, real quick question before, you, before we have to let you go, because you've been amazing. How do you stand out from the inside? This is one of our key questions that we always ask uh, some of our panelists. How do you stand out from the inside? I know you've done a lot, but a couple, a couple. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Edgar, first of all. Um, how I stand out from the inside is that I have committed myself to learning more about how to interact with people who are different than me. And not just because I'm a person of color and it and it connects with me easily, you can see, but because there's so much to learn about how to truly mine the talents of people and how to, un I can't understand the world unless I understand people. And it's just going to keep splintering. I mean, the latest thing is identity, but there will be more. And so we have to learn the skills to be able to learn. So I'm committed. I have, you know, 10 books at my bedside table at all time. I'm enrolling in classes. I'm having hard conversations and I'm expressing myself vulnerably. I'm exposing myself to potential hurt so that I can um, get comfortable being in the, the world that is not requiring conformity anymore. And I want to be part of that process. So, you know, it's a change for me because it's really easy to be a likable person of color and you just get to be that nice person. And I'm standing in a different space because I want to learn and support other people for the betterment of my community. Thank you so much for joining the, the podcast. I want everybody to follow her on all of her social media. We'll tag her social media sites down below and also grab her book on Amazon. 
catch it, enjoy it, read it, go home, try out some of those recipes. I know I will be. Liz, thank you so much. Thank you. Guys, please check her out on her website, YouTube, TikTok, and please go check out her both her books on Amazon. She has Curring Up, and then she also has 1440 Principles, How to Stop Wasting Time and Make the Most of Your Life. Go check out her books. But once again, I want to thank you all for viewing the Stand Up From The Inside podcast presented by Versity. I'm your host, Edgar Daggett. And again, I want to ask you, for all of our new viewers, how do you stand out from the inside? Go donate blood. Go host a, a blood drive. Find out all the information that you need on versity.org. Once again, thank you all for joining me. Subscribe, and we'll see you all next time.